Welcome back to ICU Life and Recovery. My name is Mark and I am the host. And this episode today is a very special one. It is with one of my best friends, Dr. Lindroth. And some technical issues in the recording have meant that this episode took a bit more effort in recording, uh, in editing, and a bit more effort in trying to process it and get it to be a, a quality where... It was good enough to be put out because I believe that the conversation that we had was important enough that it needed to be good and it needed to be of a high enough standard that it, it warranted being published. So I would I would like to thank you all for, for your patience and waiting for it to come out. I'd like to thank um, Heidi's uh, patience in waiting for this episode to come out and being... Um, very generous with her time in recording this episode and just being a very good friend and I will pass you on to past me who will do another introduction and I hope you really enjoy this episode it's really great and thank you for listening welcome back to ICU life and recovery my name is Mark and I am the host and I am here today with a a dear friend of mine and the only guest so far that I actually know in the real world and have met in the real world. She is an ICU researcher who used to be at Indiana University and has now moved to the prestigious Mayo Clinic. Her name is Dr. Heidi Lindroth. Heidi, do you want to tell the listeners what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm thrilled to be here and quite honored. Thank you for the invite. And just a little bit about me, I'm a senior associate consultant nurse scientist at Mayo Clinic, and I split my time between Rochester, Minnesota, and uh, Northwest Wisconsin region in the Mayo Clinic health system. And my vision is a, is a world without delirium. I am really passionate about improving care around delirium, and I pretty much will do anything include my practice or in research implementation to move the needle towards that goal. I know it's a super high goal, but I think we can make progress towards it. So today, I think what I would like to focus on is patients driving their own care to their fullest ability. It is patient-centered care, and we're doing an amazing job at getting towards that goal, but moving to the next step of really engaging and listening to the patient and allowing them it is their body, it is their hair, they should drop it. So really putting them in that capacity so they can. And I really want patients and families and the healthcare team to have the tools they need to thrive. And that is really focused on delirium, but it also is broader than that because delirium is so intertwined with everything we do in the hospital. So obviously we've had World Delirium Awareness Day not that long ago. And obviously during the discussions about delirium, we spoke about transitioning from a purely awareness system that we've had for a long time and now driving it to be beyond the awareness and transitioning into the care. So we're talking about a very similar sort of thing here. We know patient-centered care is the is the awareness aspect of it. And now we're going to change it into returning as much of the kind of choice 
back to the patient. So when they're capable of making decisions, they should be allowed to make that decision. And this has came up in various different aspects of various different delirium conversations that we've had. Uh, Dr. Corner, who was the last guest, also spoke about it being when physiotherapy was getting done. Even the very simple things like giving them the choice of the music, even if that's the only autonomy they're given, that's returning back a part of their control. And life in ICU is is a complete lack of control. The patient has no no say, no control, no autonomy, no control of the environment or control of their own body. And that's probably a contributing factor to why delirium in ICU is 80% compared to 20% in the rest of the hospital outside of hip surgeries and geriatrics. But I suppose the, the big initial hurdle is how do you, as a clinician, decide a patient is cognitively aware and capable enough to start making decisions? Yeah, I think it's an excellent point. And I think it's, it's a very, very difficult. And I think it's very individual and every situation is going to be different. And I'm coming at it from a bedside nurse. I'm coming at it from that perspective. Like I'll ask very specific questions about orientation, about uh, attention, about disorganized thinking or hallucinations and delusions. The conversation Oftentimes, I think in clinical care, we're so pressed to get so many things accomplished that we don't often have a simple conversation with the patient. And because of that, many things don't come out that are that would be very helpful in understanding not only how they're thinking, how they're doing cognitively, where they are on that delirium scale with symptoms, but also just in general how they're feeling. And so then this really stems from uh, work I did earlier that I was part of a, a trial. We were recruiting patients before surgery and then after they had surgery, we would see them twice a day, do a lot of different delirium assessments and doing severity. And there were, were individuals that I had the assumption that I was like, oh, these people, you know, they have all the risk factors. They are having a big surgery. They had complications after their surgery. They're going to have delirium. And of course I was wrong. Like we would ask, you know, are you feeling confused? And they would say yes, but they would never meet all of the features for delirium or go all the way. And after the first, you know, one or two, I started asking the person, I'm like, what's going on? Like, what are you doing? You say you feel confused, but it doesn't seem like you're, 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 you're struggling with it or how are you managing that? Uh, or you feel like you told me that you're having a hard time focusing what does that mean? And how are you helping yourself cope? And over time, I got a number of different responses, but it was really, really quite cool and very eye-opening for me because people were um, counting backwards from 20 to help themselves focus. They were playing their own memory game. Uh, one person had their own vacation land that they told me in, in great detail, which was pretty awesome. And it was where they went wherever they, whenever they felt stressed out, this is where they went, their vacation land. Other people had their family members do this, like post signs at the end of their bed that said, you know, today is blank, you are blank, and this is why you're here, this is where you are. Because they had had delirium in previous hospitalizations, I, I learned, and that this is how they had figured out to help themselves. And it just really made me think that I don't often, I do now, but before, um, and I think about delirium 24-7, quite honestly, I, now I ask like my patients, are you, are you feeling 
ask that. And I think we're missing an opportunity there to really understand where the patient is at and help us make a decision about how much can they drive with their own care. If they're feeling confused, how can, what are they doing to help themselves and how can I support that as a clinician? I think that there's two very, very separate pathways here. I think outside of ICU, there's things, a lot of things that can be done easier to help with delirium prior to awareness, helping create tools that will help them post whatever post-infection surgery, whatever the event is, and that the family can be informed and then you can sort of have a, a more direct line to the to the end goal. The problem with ICU is that it's not just the condition. So I had sepsis that turned into ARDS and everybody that's listened to this is probably sick of me retelling the exact same tale. But um, so that was sepsis-based delirium. I had delirium prior to ICU. I went to ICU. I was then given your cocktail of, of sedatives and other drugs to allow me to be intubated and then put in a coma. So those drugs are also a precipitating factor for delirium. So I was delirious and then made, I, I would argue, worse by being in ICU. Now, there wasn't, there's not an option in that. It was, I had to be in ICU. So I'm not sure it's going to be as easy to reduce delirium in the ICU setting as it would be elsewhere where awareness and then plan making can be the actual fundamental way that we practice medicine. And I say we as the royal we of the world practice medicine is that we have created a sort of super environment for delirium and that people will come in with delirium, they'll be placed under, that'll make it worse. There'll be people who don't have delirium who come in, get put under and develop it. And then there'll be the lucky section who don't have it at the start, don't have it at the, at the middle and then get it at the end. And the problem is that how do you identify delirium in a comatose person? Obviously, as you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in everything I can get my grubby little paws into in terms of delirium. So I've listened to a lot of people who are, who are more studied and more educated on the point. I've never heard anything that really satisfies me that there's thinking there because the real thing and Miguel spoke about it was going to no sedation in ICU and having everybody not sedated. That's realistically the only way I can see us getting to a non-delirious ICU. Um, and obviously that I don't think anytime soon can happen because I certainly think there's strong stuff on, on low sedation from, from Denmark, but it seems to be positive that we could probably do a lot of people on less that would help them. But it's just a case of, I don't know, I can't, I can see a lot of positives outside of the ICU. I could see us in five, 10 years being really on top of delirium everywhere else in the hospital, maybe even in the community as well. But when it comes to the ICU door, short of massive systemic overhaul of, of how everybody does the job inside ICU and how we yeah, how medicine is practiced and, and how we can do that safely is, is the other big thing. And getting people away from the, it's how we've always done it, thinking, which is the hurdle of everything. I think it is quite a conundrum. I'm new to medical ICU. 
I was I really grew up in the neurosurgery ICU, did some surgical ICU work, and I've been in the medical ICU now for I guess it's a year and a half, but still relatively new. And I I go I mean every day I, I work in there I scratch my head because I'm like how do we get through this? How do we change the culture? How do we work towards like well we're, I think we're getting a lot better at detecting and mitigating delirium. At least we have the evidence and we are. I think we really have to power through and get that into practice. But how what's the next steps there? I think it has to be multifocal and kind of like multi-pronged because some people are going to come in with delirium and you're always going to have that spectrum of severity. And so how do you inform the culture and infuse the evidence well enough? So regardless of that spectrum, clinicians have the tools they need to help that patient. And the patient has and the family has the tools they need to really help themselves. I think part of it, I was listening to Walking Home from the ICU yesterday in the podcast, and they had a recent episode about the awake and walking ICU, which I hadn't heard about. I can't wait to look up because that's like amazing to me that they don't sedate when they insulate patients. And I agree. I think we have to get to that. And I think if practice moves fast and slowly, uh, looking at how it changed from, we used to really sedate everyone to a point of comatose. And now at, I think the majority of facilities pre-COVID, we are going more for light, moderate sedation. But I think that took about 10 years. How do we change that culture in a more productive, intentional way? So you're saying like people come into the medical ICU with delirium. So if you tackle delirium outside of the ICU, then mm-hmm. hopefully that delirium has been noticed and identified and plans have been placed prior to them reaching the door. So we're already at the point of, so ICU is like the end step. Most people don't initially start an ICU short of like a massive accident or things like that and usually at that point you still came in through whatever emergency medicine pathway exists so no one really goes directly to ICU before seeing some other clinician there's also an argument of the big argument of where medicine has become too specialized that all of this hyper specialization means that other things get kind of you when you're a master of this fine discipline that other aspects of your medical training don't get used you're sort of like uh, those muscles don't get flexed and so these things don't get noticed and i assume that it'll be a similar thing in sort of like icu nursing you'd be hyper focused on that bit and other aspects of it and I think that's part that's like a total overhaul of how we train and how we how we progression and I think think that that would help a lot uh, having more generalists involved in 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 teams again like in my hospital the I don't believe there are true intensivists there's no there's no doctors that are purely intensive care doctors they're 50 percent icu 50 percent anesthesia and i don't i don't know if that's good i think it, it probably is obviously we're, we're not a high demand hospital there's six beds which is why that probably exists and that there's not the sort of point of having a pure but i think that that helps because it keeps you exposed to to the rest of the of the sort of thing and uh, i think when you become so hyper-focused, you forget the kind of fundamental things. And I feel that delirium is a fundamental, pleasantly confused, has been about for forever. And everyone knows 
how much I hate that phrase and that I've heard many people use it and 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 it is it always draws anger in me but we've kind of knew this has existed for a long time it's been aware yeah sometimes I just think that we've became so specialized in training that we've kind of went so far away that they can no longer see the kind of base structure that we built we've built a tower so high that you can't see the ground I know there's discussions about having more generalized training as part of it but I'm just I think that that shift will also help delirium and that I think it's always said that delirium is an indicator of good care you know places that have excellent care tend to have lower delirium numbers so identify early interact early and it tends to be caught situations that have better care when I think about delirium my mind explodes because there's so many there's so many things that get makes my head hurt Absolutely. Yeah, I think our current system, call it Healthcare 1.0, it's fragmented. It is, we are very highly specialized. We are getting a lot better at working in teams. And I think that will help that bridge that specialization because all different brains coming together. We come up with a lot of different solutions because people look at it and approach things differently, which I think is critical to that. But I also feel like our healthcare system, at least in the U.S., it needs an overhaul because we are operating on, I think, previous systems with newer evidence. And we, and I think in order to get that evidence implemented into practice so it is scalable and it's sustainable, we actually have to change the operating system. And that was really something I learned when I was at Indiana University, working with Dr. Malaz Bustani and the Center for Health Innovation and Implementation Sciences. You know, really, we have a lot of beliefs, especially in the ICU, going back to that sedation piece. And I really do think that there's a big movement now. I feel like, like narrative medicine has really come back. And I think storytelling, you've used it century. And quite honestly, Mark, I've been highly influenced by your stories, those by other ICU survivors. And I think that would really help. It helps bring it home and make it real to anyone in your story. You can identify with it. You empathize with it. You, the compassion comes through. And you, I think in the ICU, we have a glimpse in time of that person's life. And it might be four hours. It might be eight hours. It could be 12. It might be a few days in a row or it might not. And so being able to connect, maybe it's not that person's specific journey, but what that journey looks like, I think is very informative to practice. How do we bring those stories to clinicians in the front line and to those teams to really help change the culture? I think, going to tip the horn of my hospital again, I think the hospital I was in has pretty much now nailed the, the ICU philosophy. So when you're in ICU, obviously you're cared for by the, the great team. Once you depart ICU and do your step down, either through the high dependency units or straight on to the general wards. You are seen by the rehabilitation coordinating team. He'll visit you periodically on your way to outside of the hospital. After departing the hospital, you'll then be seen by the post-ICU clinic, five or four week program, where you're seen by various specialists, psychology, pharmacy, or polypharmacy and if any drugs have been left on that shouldn't have been on they get caught there you get seen by whatever services seem to be needed in your your case and then after that there's now the ICU steps Ayrshire team so you've got the peer support after the initial 
I think that system needs to exist everywhere because that's the best. So you get the clinicians interacting with the patients post-recovery. So you hear the story, you hear the deliriums, you hear the, the things that are good, the things that are bad. So that's the initial impact as well as getting them whatever it is that they're needing. So psychology is universal and pharmacy is universal. And then depending on on that particular group of people, is it sort of social work or energy advice or whatever those people need is provided to them through the wide connection of contacts that the service has developed. And then right at the end is the is the long-term peer support of ICU steps. And I think it's not a perfect system. There's no system is, is perfect, but I think it's about as good as we get within our current situation. And I think in terms of there's not a part missing because I, I, I did feel for a long time that we had bits missing. I felt that there was a gap between ICU and the post-ICU clinic that, you know, I, I had this, but I had this because of one of the nurses' health didn't let her be on the unit. But yeah, so I, I think this is about as good as we can get. I would love to see more people adopt it, but it's, it's like everything. It's can they afford to do the clinical staff have time and the rotas to, because a lot of things need to line up. You know, you've got a, a psychologist, you've got a, an ICU consultant, you've got uh, several nurses you've got the pharmacist you know you've got a lot of professionals involved in that clinic you know that's a lot of of money I don't like talking about money because I think people are what matter but like I'm not naive the world does work on money but it seems to be successful and that should be important too and I think you know you were talking about patient kind of directed care although they're not directly dictating what's in the clinic it's from their feedback of what they need that then changes the clinic because it's not the one i attended will be different from every other one that subsequently because they've refined it they've they've learned oh this was not good we shouldn't do this nobody liked it or oh, these things are needed so it, it mutates and changes and it's really good that way but i don't know how much that is the people and that they are willing to change and that's not unfortunately a common thing sounds like an amazing program that's awesome and it's a great that they because it sounds like a, almost like a co-design approach of like getting the feedback from patients and incorporating it going forward and making those changes which is so important i'm not too directly involved with post-intensive care recovery clinics um, but i know that i've been kind of like on a periphery of two and i know we recently started one here at mayo clinic i think it's been almost a year now maybe two years. Indiana University is one of, their, one of the original ones in the U.S., at least to my knowledge. They're taking similar approaches, and I think it's really absolutely needed, and it, it almost feels like part of it is getting the word out that these clinics and these services are available. And I almost wonder, I'm going to kind of build off of an idea that we tossed around during the World Awareness Day conversations this year of, you know, why isn't brain health and delirium part of the World Health Organization priorities, especially after COVID. The burden is tremendous that people are experiencing. And, you know, if we did crazy ideas, but if we did like a huge, like horrible public awareness campaign where people, before they went to the hospital, ever even thought they'd be in the ICU, knew that there was this thing called delirium and it is going to make them feel it might make them feel confused it might make them feel have a hard time focusing they might see or hear things have a completely different reality than 
than anyone else that they're with, and that they are, these are things that they can do to help them, or this is, these are things that the family can do to help that person. You imagine, and these are the services that you that are available, and you should ask for and advocate for to receive if you were in the hospital. I mean, imagine, imagine the power of people asking or requesting these services, and, and how would that change the consumer demand? How would that change our healthcare? How would that change delirium? I think that a lot of the problem has come from delirious being misused in the English language. And I think that that has sort of has not helped with delirium and that people just think it's, oh, they're just feeling a bit out of it and things like that. It's kind of, oh, he's, oh, I was delirious for that concert and things like that. The use of the language in the wrong context has has caused a misunderstanding of what it is and I think that coupled with a systemic sort of like opposition to using the word delirium in medicine for a prolonged period of time has caused issues because I've still I've spoke to doctors who still used pleasantly confused until they had a conversation with me and, and then uh, their their opinion point was changed. And I feel like I keep banging my head on the delirium drum. And I, I think I have a different point of view to, to other people. Lots of people who are inside the system want to do it top down, want to start at the top and change that. And I think the, the best way to do it is from the bottom up. And that if you fundamentally implant it into the education, it's like everything eventually Eventually, the people that weren't trained on delirium properly disappear out the top through retirement or whatever. My theory is that trying to change a system is way harder than trying to improve education. You're going to try and change like a hospital system. It's like, well, good luck with that. That's that's, that's pushing a boulder uphill. I prefer to do my, my pushing of stuff up the hill with very small rocks. It's not that you can't do both. It's just that I can see a clear and much easier way to kind of like start having a serious impact because the good consultants and, and sort of senior clinical people adapt. So when the younger people say, oh, you know, we studied delirium and this looks like delirium, they're less likely to go, ah, no, and more likely to go, oh, yeah, it's a sort of filter up system. And it's not just waiting for that bottom layer to to get to the top will permeate up. It's not going to work perfectly, but you know, eventually the, the mass of delirium-aware people will become so large that the non-delirium people will be squashed under the mass of the understanding. I think we need both approaches because everyone, we're all individuals and we're, we all have our own beliefs that are influenced and formed by whatever our daily experience are. And so if you're able to approach it both ways, basically it becomes like a sandwich. And I think that you can really influence and help manage that change system. So I agree. And I think, I'm going to go back to storytelling. I think it's really powerful. I think you need to use that more as a tool to really help communicate. I think particularly with delirium, so like things like broken legs and, and, you know, autoimmune hepatitis and all sorts of clients we all well not we all but people that are in that area know what that looks like they know you know you know the physiological you know the the presentation you know all of the things the chemical pathways and other things that's about it but delirium the fundamental 
worst aspect of it is the experience. There's no scan, test, or otherwise that's going to truly tell you why delirium is as bad as it is. Why is it such a terrible thing? And you can only get that from listening to people that have had it. And some people will have very different stories. I've heard people that have had lovely, happy delirium where they were they were on the beach just having a good time. And it always makes me angry hearing them. I, I won't lie about that. I'm like, I wish, I wish that was my my experience was was just a wee happy lie on the beach. But that, you know, that's a very, a very different experience. And is that experience because of perhaps different underlying issues or is it because they were treated different so I felt my delirium is fundamentally based on being unsafe and not being able to trust anyone now that could be that I was slightly hypoxic before I got taken into ICU and then put under so there might be an aspect there because I was paranoid before I got brought to ICU and is that fundamentally just continued into my delirium or is it that I was treated differently. Perhaps I was reaching for tubes and things like that. So there was a more oppressive attitude, perhaps. So I felt more restricted in a place where I couldn't have any control. And perhaps that wasn't existing. I don't know. There's no possible way to examine that retrospectively. As a lot of my ICU delirium, I look at retrospectively trying to draw causation from realization. So like where I was cut various points on my neck and on my wrist, which coincide with uh, central lines my neck and arterial lines in my arm like almost identical places so I reckon that was but I can't unequivocally say when I was having that point in my delirium was when they were doing it but it makes sense the idea that my skin was being ruptured and my brain which was detached from understanding what was going on just drew conclusions from the nerve feelings it's really interesting what you said and that struck me about the trust and I also recall you saying, and I think I'm not sure if it was Lou or Rebecca also said this, but like the power of like human touch. And I remember you talking about that one nurse that you remember his voice of like, he was very directive about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It makes me curious, like if that person who had a lovely delirium experience where he was on, on an island or wherever it was, like was that person, like were they set up differently with like, was there more human touch? Was there more communication? What, what happened that we obviously can't look retrospectively and it'd be incredibly difficult to study retrospectively for obvious reasons, but like what happened? Like, what can you do to help that person in that journey while you're trying to mitigate? I don't know. I just think that's a really interesting concept. Their minds are really powerful. Like how can we influence I have another mind-blowing theory as well, and and this kind of spins off a a sort of musing that Professor McCulloch sort of implanted in my head that delirium, what if it's not a condition? What if it's an umbrella of similar but distinctly different conditions? Because now that I've had two separate types of delirium, I've had ICU delirium, and then I've had an infectious delirium prior to uh, a septic abscess getting drained. If you told me they were the same thing, I would tell you they're not because it was a whole different experience. So the delirium I had 
in ICU was very acute, very danger, 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 constant threat, constant under pressure, constant, you know, everything was like this, where my, my septic delirium was a slow devolution. So I could feel my brain slowing. I could feel my thoughts slowing. I could feel the slow descent. This was, uh, so if I, ICU was driving off the cliff and going straight, uh, nose, nose into the ground, where this was more a sort of gentle slope, which is probably why I was able to still have enough cognitive awareness to go, oh, I know what's going on here. I am currently delirious because I knew I was talking rubbish. I was doing the sort of classical things that you're, you're told. These are the, the tick boxes of it. I identified it and then I went, I remembered the playbook for this. I shall reorientate myself. I'll tell me, I'll tell myself where I am. I'll look at pictures of my family. I'll tell myself who they are. I will look at my iPad that will tell me the time and the date. And I'll keep doing that. And I did that like every 20 minutes until my surgery. And I felt by the time I was at going down for surgery, I was I felt my mind was sharp. Like I was able to process and sort of make reasonable decisions and kind of deduce things that I wouldn't have been able to earlier in the day. My thought was, I know that sedation is going to be really bad. I know that if I'm on the downward path towards delirium and I go into surgery and they'll put me under general anesthesia, when I come out at the other end, I'm going to be worse. This is not new stuff to anybody that's listening that has any interest in delirium. Sedation makes things worse. We use it in ICU because we have to. We should use as little of it as we can. You know, I think most sort of well-thinking people agree that, that use as little as you can safely to keep people where you need them to be. And that's how I knew I was all right, was that I knew at that point that I was out of the of what I perceived to be the danger area where I was no longer slipping down the slope. And so I was probably going to be all right, that I wasn't going to come out of surgery thinking there was spiders coming out of the lights or or whatever that I would say that they were very different experiences in terms of one was like a 10 and the other was like a like a three so this to me leads to that those are definitely not the same thing to me in my in my head that it's, it's like a lot of things because we don't know it we've kind of branded all because they all act very similar they're all kind of similar so we've we've kind of lumped them together when they're not specifically the same thing incredible that you that they're that different and that you recognize that I think we lumped them together I think that was changed the culture to really build on I think we needed a, a, a common platform or foundation to really build understand and kind of answer that like so what who cares like we have like this is how you detect and recognize the William this is this is bad like it absolutely increases somebody's mortality risk, risk of institutionalization, never returning to the life they had, let alone leave them with awful memories of what they experienced. I think we're at that point now where we need to, like you're saying, like start with the lumpers and the splitters. Now we need to start splitting them apart and how is it different? Why is it different? Do you think that like your previous experience with delirium, the 10 out of 10, if you have a lot of memory or a lot of fear involved and terror, do you think that informed your your view of the second? Like, how do you think that works? I don't think the ICU delirium helped me in the slightest. The only thing I would say it helped me is that it gave me access to, you know, like the delirium culture. So 
speaking at the European Delirium Association's conference and speaking at other things gave me access to what the current understanding was, what the current techniques were and things like that. So it was more that I heard Dr. Khan speaking and uh, Professor McCulloch and AJ Masharu and, and all of these sort of people that are, you know, active in sort of delirium and, and what worked that was more of and yourself obviously sort of informed me on what works best when you talk about delirium enough which that seems to be my sort of main focus now is when you you talk about it and you listen to as many experts as I have there are things that keep coming up you know reorientation keeps coming up and the, the methods of how it's doing so detection doesn't really benefit me in any way because that's someone else's job I can't detect it myself I can feel it which is what I did I and felt it at a point where I still had enough cognitive function to be able to know what it was and do something about it. I think I was mostly alerted by the fact that they told me I had a News 2 score of 6, which should have prompted them, but didn't seem to. But it prompted me, and then I took action through that process. I feel like I resolved it. And I spoke to people about the experience of what I was feeling at the time, you know, in the near aftermath to kind of go was that delirium? And it, it seemed to be the, the thought that it was delirium because it was very different. I wasn't entirely sure, but I consulted some, some experts in the field and that seemed to be the thought. So I, I don't think so much that my previous experience from ICU helped a lot because there wasn't, there wasn't a slow progression for me in terms of what I remember. There was being unwell on you know Christmas day and the day after and then delirium. There probably was, but like the hypoxic time and that has probably eradicated that, followed by the various medications that, you know, obviously can cause memory issues. So it, it certainly didn't help in that. It was more the fact that I'd been exposed to non-pharmacological treatments were more useful and things like the same guideline, because I'd not long finished being the patient on the patient booklet for for explaining it so we spoke about all the things again so i think that sort of understanding what you should do with delirium helps everybody yeah. even the patient yeah. sounds like you were aware of like you had the tools you needed i don't think i could have told md i was delirious but i don't think i could have strung a sentence together to do that it's it's kind of it's hard to explain because when i say oh i did you know telling myself who these people were I wasn't like saying it out loud I wasn't construct and from the conversations I had with doctors there was no the conversation wasn't linear it was a bit all over the place and it was a bit not manic but a bit high energy and a bit it, very very different from how I am normally but obviously this is their first encounter with me so they don't know what my normal is so I think they've just kind of thought that was just how I am um, but obviously I was aware of it but I was also aware that my ability to do things were slipping so it was more of a don't know like there'll, there'll be things uh, I assume in your in your work life where you've done it for so long that yeah. it's like a muscle reflex like a of, well that's yeah. that's what I feel like it was it was my brain processed delirium and then all of the stuff that I knew about the sort of reorientation just kicked in. It just, 
I suppose when you're exposed to something for as much and as often, it just kind of kicks in. I feel it was more of a instinctual kind of reflex thing rather than because I don't I don't know if I had the cognitive function to because I, I definitely don't think I could have told MD that I thought I was delirious. It's hard to explain. It's like explaining how you dream in terms of that. And like, I, I'm trying to put it into words, but I don't, I don't think it quite kind of justifies it, but it's as close as I'm going to, I'm going to be able to, because obviously I'm speaking as a, as a sort of reasonably fully cognitively aware person. So it's hard to, to kind of relate back to that, but I don't, I don't think I could have, I, I think it was, it was literally just knowing this, the, the sort of what what to do but it's kind of like kind of like cpr you know how people that trained in cpr they maybe been trained like eight years ago and yeah. then when it when the situation comes they they just it just clicks it just instinctually goes on that's mm-hmm. maybe a bad analogy and that things have changed and how you do cpr over that but it's that that the the skill just appears when you need it i think like you said like muscle memory it's like you were, whether it was previous experience or it was, you're pretty immersed in the delirium world and talking to people, but you, like all of that maybe prepared you for what to, I don't know what to expect, but it prepared you so you're, you recognized it or felt it and responded. I think that's the, the criteria clicked in my head and then my brain reacted it was like a reflex rather than there was no real thought in it because I don't know if I would have been able to to like form thoughts like that there wasn't a like a nice clean book of oh yes I noticed the delirium symptoms I then took action I did these steps and then from that it resolved it was more brain knew it was was not working right oh that thing helps with that boom do um like a yeah kind of like breathing I want to ask, like, how do you replicate that, what you experience? And I don't, I mean, we, like, it's not, I'm not sure if it's education or preparation or. I think it's education, but how broad do we go? Healthcare education is great because identification from the exterior is really important, but how do we get it to the public, the people that are going to suffer from delirium? Obviously, you had a preoperative system, which I think that that's a good place and that they are high risk as i'm sure that's why why it was was done they're they're high risk to get delirium therefore if you prepare them they have the tools to be able to deal with it internally if needed to be but also an awareness to trigger for our support if they're at that an earlier stage than i was where they're noticing their, their thoughts are cloudy it's not so easy when you're isolated in a side room when the next person you might speak to is eight hours later. Uh, that's my that's my hospital life. I don't live in general wards. I'm always in a side room due to my immune issues and I'm always reverse barriered or barriered if I've got something. So a lot of things I have to self be self-aware and self-advocating for or my family have to be advocating for just because people can't just wander into the room like as with normal people who like cleaners and porters and all these other people that would just normally come in and maybe have a chat while they're doing whatever. Uh, that 
doesn't happen because of the fact that you have to be gowned gloved and people don't don't do it because it's more hassle for them than it's worth which is fine uh, you know kind of ideally in an ideal world i understand that 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 shouldn't happen but like uh, i understand how the world works i'm not naive to the world but i think uh like a general public education has to happen because the fact is if you get an infection if you have severe pain you could be getting delirium dehydrated you know like and and that's that's the other reason why i thought delirium can't be one thing why it can't be one condition how can one condition be caused by so many different factors how can an infection have the same effect on the brain as being constipated or, or having pain like those i don't know neurochemical issues i, I don't I don't understand the brain particularly well uh, beyond very basic biology that I have, but it doesn't make sense if you took it to any other organ. Like yeah. if we had hepatitis, like we know that there's many different things that can cause hepatitis. You know, it can be the viral infection. It can be, you know, auto-inflammatory, uh, autoimmune, auto-inflammatory. It can be blocked bile ducts, which can be caused by many are the things we all know this but we know how to categorize it so it's it's although they have the same like physiological outcome their precipitating causes are different so like is delirium just a like a, a bunch of of related conditions or 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 is it that these things all promote the same neurochemical issue or produce same damage compounds that cross the blood brain barrier that cause the same response in the brain that the problem is how 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 do we look at that because the ethically it's a lot harder to to do as well you can't i think i am not sure some people have hallucinations some people have illusions some people don't have any of that and so it, it manifests so differently and people share their experiences and they're so different um and it's very difficult to know if it is is it because of that person's brain and their response, which is informed by their beliefs and their experiences and their memories? Or is it a completely different physiological process? I think what's interesting in that recent studies have shown that generalized slow wave activity in EEG has shown, you know, is associated with delirium independent of the illness severity and other factors, even underlying neurodegeneration. But I don't know that that's a very generalized global measurement. It would give us anything like, it might give us something to, uh, you know, if we have an EG in the ICU and it's continuous, or we might be able to like calibrate or individualize your interventions based off of how the EEG responds, which would be pretty, pretty cool. Or like maybe slow wave activity is something that we can work to prevent uh, happening. But I think that is something that needs to be tested for and how do we and is the problem is that i think and this that you know obviously there's been a lot of talking of eegs and a lot of talking in various events that i've been and i i find myself on the opposite side from most of these people and that your test you're doing on delirious people you are adding a precipitating factor that's making it worse so I think if you are wiring someone up 
while they're in a delirious state, you're altering the condition. So you're not, it's like quantum observation. When you look at something, you're changing it. So by, by doing this direct intervention, you are, you're affecting the thing that you're trying to observe. And therefore, it's never going to clearly give you an accurate examination because you are intervening in that process, thereby altering it. You know, it, I'm probably in a very, very small minority and I'm probably unique in my, in my thought process of it, but I am also pretty unique in the, in the debate in that there's not a lot of patients um, invited to the table of conversation. But yeah, so I have reservations on, on the EEG's usefulness and the fundamental problem is that you might be changing the delirium by what you're doing because I would imagine if you had a wired knee up while I was in the ICU delirious that you would have made it worse it would have precipitated and added more aspects to this as well me and them feeling everybody raves about it everybody seems to think that this is the path forward I'm unsure how steady the path that they're planning to walk on is they're going across this this wooden bridge, and I'm I'm not entirely sure all the planks are are secure. But the problem mm-hmm. is that people mm-hmm. think at it from a scientific point of view. Yeah. They think about uh, the yeah. brain has electrical and chemical, mm-hmm. but they forget that the brain is not just a piece of matter. That you know, it's the fundamental base of thought. So. You know the experience of delirium is, is is important as well, and that yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. Of so, what I hear you saying is like if they had like so during your delirium in the ICU, they had put the EEG on your head, like that would have entered into the delirium, likely changed what you were experiencing, but wouldn't have resolved it. And it would be yeah, right. I mean, possibly don't know what goes on in people's brains now during delirium obviously wouldn't know it then is that what you're saying by kind of like wiring them up you're going to make it worse um so like lots of icu survivors obviously not all of them that have had delirium generally believe in some sort of torture or experimentation Mm -hmm. so you're you're feeding into that which in my mind is only going to make the delirium worse Mm-hmm. Um, as the way of resolving it generally is to make them feel safer and what you're doing is the opposite of that you're making them feel more in danger by essentially playing into the narrative of being experimented on you don't know what the leads are you just like your awareness of reality comes down to your like nerves so you'll feel things being put on your head that could be them thinking there's being probes inserted in their heads and things, which are only going to be, that's, that's going to be bad. <laughs> that's the only way I can put it is I think that's going to be bad. I think that's, I don't know how we resolve that short of making like ECGs standard on everyone in hospital's head, which is never going to be the, the outcome until it's a norm. And I don't, as I say, I, I'm probably like in a handful of people. I, I don't hear very many people on my side of this 
like most people see this as the potential of finding phenotypes and delirium and things like that and cool yep you might you might do and and what is that what what use is that going to be because that never seems to be so I, I think it's going to cause harm and i think that the the process of researching it is going to cause harm but every sort of researchy thing there is an element of of risk of harm so okay that harm is to me tangible I, I can i can clearly see where that is so where's the benefit and that's the that's the thing i have a hook up on like it's like the vaccines when we hear about the the blood clot issues yes there's a blood clot issue but the benefit of not getting covid is is a much higher thing so benefit outweighs risk right i don't i don't see it here and and maybe it's that i don't know enough that's quite possible i'm not i'm not infinitely all knowing i wish it was but i hear yeah. people talking about the phenotyping delirium yeah but i don't hear what the benefit of knowing what the phenotypes will be so so i can answer so one you have an incredibly important point about the benefit risk ratio and i had not thought about how that eeg putting it on without like Either it's on before delirium happens and the person knows about it, or it's very well like explained that this is what's happening. Like that one, like the nurse that you talk about to kind of help understand what's going on. But I agree that's a critical point. And I don't think that it is talked about very much. The phenotyping side of it, the reason, because I'm, I'm one of those people that I really do think we need phenotypes of delirium. Part of that splitting piece, but we need to understand how people experience it differently. What are the different symptoms? What's the severity? And the reason I want to do it, and this might help or might not help, but it's important to discuss. The reason I want to phenotype is that as a clinician, I think it would be beneficial if I had a way of understanding one, where the patient was on the spectrum of disease. So if they, let's just go with severity. So if they are, you know, mild, moderate, severe, those we'll three categories, like not, I would rather we could be continuous, but I think it's easier to talk about that in those three buckets. So let's say that they're severe. I try reorientation, doesn't work. I try music, doesn't work. I try the third thing, like early mobility. I get them down to moderate and mild. Now, I was able to individualize the intervention based off that patient's response. And I think that can be severity, it could be symptom-wise. That's why I think phenotyping is important because different profiles of people in delirium might respond differently to different interventions. And being able to tease that apart might help mitigate it faster. That's why I so I, I have a I have a counterpoint to your your phenotyping argument. So you break the phenotyping down, and then we we come up with suspected things. Do we not believe that the individual experience of of the person the patient prior to will affect which treatments will be effective? So I don't think pheno I don't think phenotyping will necessarily give us that individual like treatment type uh, or even clump them i think that 
individual people will have different things that work to them. And I think that that fundamentally will come from what they're, what will ground them back in reality, which will be based on what they, what they were into before. So like I find music is useful for me because that's a big part of, of sort of my management tools for, for like anxiety and things like that. And I think that that will have more of an impact in, in drawing me out of the delirium things that those things that, that are fundamental and major aspects of their life prior to ICU are more likely to bring them out than any, any phenotyping. And those will be very individual to the, the, the person. So that's why I, I'm not against phenotyping. I think like if we can find out whatever we can find out about delirium is great. It's just the pathway that we're trying to, to get there. I'm not about, uh, I like if you can find something, if you can find whatever chemicals are, are released in delirium or or whatever, if we can find whatever the pathway is, great. I'm I'm all on there. I'm not here to obstruct the advancement, but if you have to speak truth to power is the is the thing. If I think that something is not good, then I should be able to say and and I'm not I'm not like banging on walls or or anything here I'm I'm constructing it in as eloquent a way as I can but that I think that this needs to be looked at uh, certainly and how it's going to be applied and the, and the benefits of it I think that it seems not to be so well explained when when people talk about the EEG and using it there's never a ethical conversation about how the derived that this was okay things like ethics groups and ethics committees don't often have patients on them uh, and certainly not in in a significant number where you're, you're going to be doing it potentially on people like me so you should have people like me uh, involved in that conversation or at least people that have experienced it to at least understand that there might be problems here that you can't understand as an academic or a or a clinician because it's not it's not in your wheelhouse because it's not something you've experienced and that's you know right. we want to get to a point where no one experiences it and that would be wonderful and maybe this is maybe this is a point on the road to a, a zero delirium world but I, I feel that. I'm not saying that this shouldn't be done. I'm just saying that. No, I think, you know, I, like, Mark, you're, you're talking about, like, we started out by talking about the patient needing their care. This is exactly it. You know, I think um, that's why it is, I feel like it, I'm really passionate about the patient needing their care and, and being involved in research and co-designing interventions and co-designing their care. Because if, if we don't ask, we don't know. We're only operating on what we think. And it is likely very different than what you think or what that patient wants at that moment. And there's always, of course, a balance or a dance to find that happy medium of a compromise. Uh, so both can be yes, yes for both, a win-win, because we, I think in order to get to that zero delirium, we need to understand it better. And that is the you know, trying to understand the brain and that's using the tools we have, but that that absolutely means 
that we also need to talk to patients and have that voice, the opinion, the feedback, the insight to say like, this is not gonna work or this is why, these are things that you need to think about or um, what's an alternative? That's why, so I think it's so important. So, I mean, I hadn't thought about EEG and I love our conversation because it, I mean, it, it quite honestly to me like just drives from the point of why it's important for patients to drive their own care. So it's super, it's, it's critical to us getting, getting ahead. Yeah, and, and certainly if you look at the sort of people who deliver the best care and, you know, my personal opinion on it, you know, like Dr. Needham, Dr. Hosey, yourself, Kate Tantum, Dr. O'Brien, who was my ICU consultant, the department's consultant, uh, they all heavily involve patients in the things that they're, they're, they're planning. The it seems like the people that do it best understand the value of the patient input. And it, it seems we're kind of moving there slowly to, to patients being more involved and in that I've certainly been more involved in stuff. And I don't think it's just because I'm more well-known, although that's probably a, an aspect of it that people know who I am and therefore um, that's why I get asked to do things. But I think that patients are being more involved at the baseline because the culture at the bottom has changed that that people when they're designing research and things like that are now thinking about well I don't want to do research that ultimately doesn't matter because it doesn't help so the way to to mitigate that risk is to have the patients involved and take out these things that we would have done wrong at the start because they'll they'll know a certain amount about what we're wanting to do and that seems to be happening which which is good but the problem is as i said it seems to be happening more at the at the lower that well i don't i don't want to say the lower end but like at more at the younger researchers and it, you know the sort of how we've always done it nature seems to exist and the more established not all not all it's like what we talked about with the with the delirium education is that this is this change is in motion. Uh, we just need to kind of keep it going because I think if we change the healthcare academic system, then or 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 standard, then that will bleed across. And and obviously, if we do it better in healthcare, it'll bleed across the academic. So it's another another aspect to to the sort of delirium discussion that we had. If we if we improve that, then we'll I reckon we'll improve the delirium care because the better the care, the better the delirium care that seems to be observed. People that deliver better care, their delirium numbers seem to be lower. So all of these things that seem to be in motion and and. You know, I've been I've been a, a patient for twenty years under for various things. So more than well, nearly two thirds of my life, uh, I have been a, under consultants or doctors for various things. I do see the the evolution of of medicine in a rather close up way. I've seen like established consultants that I have that were very set in their way have have changed to a more 
a more modern approach and that's that's great because that's what we need because if those people are changing then then that's good uh, particularly ones like um, gastroenterology because they are definitely seeking delirium because now I know what delirium is I go back to when I was on gastro wards and there's people wondering about the wards talking about things that aren't there I'm like oh yeah they had delirium oh and no one did anything about it yeah that that I don't think would happen anymore well although I'm not really on gastro much anymore I just I don't see that happening now uh, in terms of I think that people understand what that would be that's that's your very classical sort of delirium you know the very hyper a uh, clear uh, hallucination alcohol withdrawal delirium and i think that people would would clearly identify that now where so i i kind of retrospectively have looked through my health and i definitely think that i had delirium before icu when i had my colectomy i i, I would put money that I, that I had it. I was in a lot of pain as my bowel died inside me. And then I have like clear memories of similar to, to some people where I was just bathed in light. I was just bathed in warmth and light and just, just felt really quite good for a reasonable length of time. And just, yeah, I think that that, that was delirium in a similar way to there. And the problem is that I can never, I will never be able to tell that was delirium because it's a retrospective look and it was never caught. But I think I was, I think I was hypoactive delirious at them because I was very low energy. I was just your kind of classical hypo kind of withdrawing, low energy, not really engaging, not wanting to do things. So I, d- I definitely think I've had multiple episodes of delirium that, w- that weren't caught and that just doesn't, I don't think the case, although he says that after having spoke about how his delirium wasn't caught um, not that long ago. But I think if I had of if I had have had it for longer, I think it would have been caught because they did have the news two score of six. I think eventually something would have been done. Just I I didn't want to I didn't want to wait on on them doing things if I my brain interacted before then. Absolutely. There's so much great evidence and work that has been done in delirium and also with engaging patients in, in research and in the clinical environment like now we need to not only like implement that that evidence in the practice but we need to be supportive through that change and to, and to help really guide that change and help support people it's difficult like i think it's difficult to like whenever you ask someone else's opinion, you're always at a risk for some not agreeing with you. And you know, I've learned through my agile methodology training is that like we get really wed to a solution to something, and we think it's like the best solution ever. And we really, it's hard to hear that it's not. And we focus enough on the problem um, and ask those questions that can hurt your ego. And it, it's hard. Failure is difficult. And it's not that it's not even that it's failing, but it is a different outcome than what you expected. So how how do you embrace that failure? So you fail fast, fail early, and you will focus on that and obsessed with the problem and are, are able. And I think to me, I had it really changed my perspective 
And I feel much more open now to asking questions and receiving the feedback like, no, that's an awful idea. Okay, well, then let's find like, let's keep on looking, you know, for the right solution. But it's a mindset shift. And that's hard. It's just human nature. We're, we're set in our ways and our beliefs. So I think it's important that we support that change. I think it's it's always better to find out you're going down the wrong path towards the inevitable cliff edge earlier than it, it's easier it's easier to move horse at the start than it is the more time you've invested in something the less likely you are to be swayed off of it and that you've you you know and and it is kind of human nature if you've spent six months six years 20 years in something that you feel so invested that you don't want to move off it the it's the central basis of uh, how it's always done isn't it that you've done something for so long that it's so ingrained in who you are that you don't want to you don't want to change so we are now at the end of our time so I just want to thank you for coming and was there anything you wanted to promote anything you wanted to the, the people to to know about or anything so websites or apps or anything like that so one thank you so much for having me i it love is awesome i loved our conversation i hope others enjoy it too i think uh the american Brewing society we're having a virtual conference in june registration is open it's going to be amazing um, i hope that you join us in that and world aware awareness day 2022 we're getting ready for it. We want to actually have more engagement throughout the year. Mark and I have talked about that. And I know the overall team is for that too, the iDelirium team. So uh, direct message us if you're interested in being involved with that. And uh, I think my last slide would be to check out the Center for Health Innovation and Implementation Science at Indiana University. Uh, that's right, trained in HL methodologies with Dr. Kustani. And it really helped it's a completely different perspective on how to move evidence into practice. And I am completely biased, but I think it's really powerful. So I encourage you to check it out. So uh, can you give the listeners your handle for Twitter and the iDelirium handle? Uh, so my Twitter handle is at mini pixie, M-I-N-I-P-I-X-I-E 26. And the iDelirium handle is iDelirium under dash aware or if you just google i delirium the website will pop up too and then american delirium society same thing google that it'll pop right yeah. up yeah i had looked at the american delirium society conference and i was i was uh pondering on it uh whether i I should go, but I, I can't plan that far ahead, unfortunately. Um, so thank you, Heidi, for coming and thank you for your time. And I hope that everyone enjoyed it. And thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.